You're very welcome along to the Brian and Kieran Warfield podcast, the ramblings of two Irish balladeers, featuring Brian Warfield of the fierce and mighty Wolf Tones and his son Kieran, that's me, of the band Catalpa and also of the bandwagon bus, Dublin's only musical ballad tour on wheels. So sit back, relax, grab a tea, coffee, beer, or wine, or whatever takes your fancy as we go rambling through life's misty, foggy dew, through stories, songs, history, politics, life on the road, and just a general bit of crack. Okay, very welcome along to the second uh, episode. And this episode, as explained in the first episode, we're naming after one of the songs on the very first Wolf Tone album, The Foggy Jew from 1965. So the second song on that album was a song called Down in the Mines. And that's a song I've just reintroduced myself to, to, and I love it. I actually love that song. I think it's really catchy and a great folk song. Yeah, it is. And... uh it, I think it's a Welsh um, folk song, and uh, it was Tommy Byrne introduced uh, that song into the group because uh, Tommy had uh, I, he'd worked around the folk clubs like we did mm. in the early days, and he he worked with a guy called Derek Scanlon, and both of them sang together, and both of them played guitars. It was a nice nice duo, mm. and. Uh, it, that was one of the songs he had, so that was one of the songs he brought to the to the group when he joined. And uh, I think Tommy would have brought a lot of uh, the more folky songs to it, did he? Would he have on the first album, or was he, just that song off that? that? Yeah, no, t- Tommy was Tommy. Tommy wouldn't have been. He would have been into folk songs, yeah, and uh, he wasn't. Although he sang some Irish uh, stuff, he. It wouldn't have been his main kind of interest. Yeah. Um, but he loved a, a, a very, very good melodic voice. So he, he could sing slower type songs and all that kind of thing. So I love probably his vo- suited him. Yeah, I love that his voice on that album. Like, a, and that album, of course, we we spoke about it in the first time we did the podcast. But uh, I fecked up on the sound. So, <laughs> so. Uh, we missed out on that, but the Foggy Dew album, of course, was through Fontana Records, and uh, Fontana, you got signed up for five records, was it five LPs? We had got a contract of five years, five albums. Um, we never completed the whole deal because um, Dolphin, uh, our manager, um, Oliver Barry at the time, they bought out the Dolphin, or they, they bought the the Wolf Tone deal for themselves in uh, Dolphin Records. And um, we were with Dolphin Records until we formed our own sometime later called Triskel Records. And then, uh, you know, I, I think it, they were all released through Dolphin anyhow. Mm. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, we had a contract with Fontana, but uh, they bought it out because... Uh, they felt the Wolf Tones were selling, we were selling huge amount of records at the time and uh, they wanted to 
on their label. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Jim Hand, Oliver Barry, um, it was uh, Oliver Barry, it was um, Joe O'Reilly, and there was one other guy there, and they were they formed the Dolphin label. Jim Hand, he was involved with the Furies, was he? He was. He yeah. managed the Furies there yeah. for a while. I, but, I remember that name. Yeah. Um, but they, we, we, I think, you know, from then on with Dolphin, um, um, we had huge sellers like the Rifles of the IRA and mm. uh, Let the People Sing. Um, you know, they were all... Uh, big, big sellers. So you, can, you can't even imagine that, like, back then, you know, on vinyl, we could go nearly eight, nine 900,000 pieces. Mm. And um, that'd be worldwide. And uh, so, like, it's only after vinyl went that the sales start going down because people could copy them. Yeah. Like, when the tape came in, you could copy it to another tape. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so they didn't have to put... But finally, you had to buy the record. Yeah. There's no way of transferring or keeping it. And it's great to see it making a comeback now as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's... I people like it. Uh, I don't... They like to feel the touch, the... You know, the, the, the whole product is something special. Mm. I think I've downloaded two albums in my life. And I just don't like it. Because you don't have anything... <laughs> There, you know, it's you're not you're nothing to hold. I, even as much as I, I do love LPs, but I just don't have the thing to start up a new collection or get a record player. But I love having a CD and reading the the inlet on it and yeah. just reading about the songs, reading who wrote them. You know, I just I think, and a lot of bands don't make that effort anymore. With that, they just put a, a quick cover on the front. I don't know, maybe it's not that they just don't have the money or whatever, but um, it's an awful shame because it's... It's it's not the same as an no. LP. I mean, when when I bought my first LP, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like having something very, very special. And, uh, you know, that's that's what LP has brought. I, 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 I can't understand, like, people, uh, you buy a bit of cyberspace and yeah, uh, it's, it's you've not, nothing... No. At the end of the day. <laughs> but anyhow, I guess time and things move on and that's the way it is. And now it's streaming and all that kind of stuff. But we've gone through um, the vinyl. Uh, then you had the big, um, what's this called? A-track. A-track machine things. And uh, yeah, they, they brought out um, a, a little thing for a card you could play your single records on. <laughs> I don't know how successful that was. Then the eight track, then the cassette. Um, then we were told that CD was supposed to be the best everything in the world. I remember, I got you all guys uh, CD players. I remember you bringing it back, and I remember you got this uh, CD with it that played all these special effects like helicopters and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. We just sit and listen to it for the day. And then I think one of the first CD bands was. ELO, I think it might have been, and just uh, yeah. the sound of it, like compared to, you know, having it in your headphones, you know, in your ears rather than having to be in a sitting room listening to. Yeah. But I do remember back to when we lived in Luke and, and we used to have Queen 
Queen's album. I, I think it was Day at the Races, was it? That it would have been your album or Mam's album. Or... Uh, yeah, I I remember I got Queen's album. That was the one with um, Bohemian Rhapsody. It was called uh, a Day at the Races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I just thought that was amazing arrangement to a song. I always, I, I liked all kind of music, uh, and to me, there was only two kinds of music: good and bad. Mm. And uh, that was a very special record. But we beat that. Uh, we we won the, the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> we were number one, and Bohemian Rhapsody was at number four or five. There you go. So I think there might have been a little uh, internet uh, conspiracy behind that, though, Dad. Not at all. They were all running campaigns. Ah. That's what the producer said to us. Said, uh, you know, like. Everybody ran campaigns, uh, so it's not just uh, the Wolf Tones. The Irish are very determined people when they get going. <laughs> anyway, it was a great achievement regardless. Um, so Fontana Records, I looked up a bit about Fontana Records and they had on their label at the time uh, Frank Sinatra, Johnny Mathis, Kiki D, Joan Baez, Spencer Davis Group, The Spinners, Little Richard, David Essex, the Corries, Manfred Mann, and the Wolf Tones. There you go. What a what a motley crew! But they went out of business in '74, and they became Mercury Records then. But they were part of the Phillips Group. I didn't know that. Part of Phillips, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, Jack Barverstock, who was the A and R guy for um, for Fontana at the time, and he made our first record, and he. His claim to fame that there wasn't a week he didn't have something in the top ten, and uh, he amazing guy. But we we went over to England uh, and uh, I think we played in the Galtimore Ballroom or something at the time, and uh, we got a spot there. It was a, just a, a break in the middle of the when the show bands were having a break. All right, yeah. <laughs> we played. But uh, we went up and did the record in Marble Arch Studios, which is a big, big studio at the time. Jack Bavistock was a and guy. And uh, he, we go into the place probably about nine o'clock in the morning. And the guy says, um, now, he says, uh, let's hear what you got. So we go, uh, first song, second song, third song, third. next. He kept saying, next, next. So he kept doing them. So he said, is that what you got now, yeah? So he said, yeah, that's it. And he says, uh, we said, well, when, when do you want us to do it? He said, it's all done. <laughs> so you, you tracked it live, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we sang the tracks live, and I can still remember, like, with the mics in front of us. And uh, he mixed it up, and he, he was up there in the in the box mixing it. And big, big studio, because it could hold a full orchestra. Yeah. And um, he, the record was finished, you in, know. In a day? In, in a day, yeah. Wow. The whole thing. And what was it like hearing yourself for the first time? We didn't hear it. He didn't let no. us hear it, no. Um, when we finished, we, we finished that day, whatever, um, more or less, thanks very much, guys, you know. And we didn't hear it until we got a copy of the record. Wow. Uh, and uh, then we heard it, and then that was something special to have a record, you know, that you could hear, you know, what you'd done. So how long did you have to wait in between doing it and um, getting it in your hands? I think a couple of months. Wow. Yeah. 
to say yeah. that was because I even remember like when I because my first uh, my first uh, few songs with Phil King down in uh, Dave McCune's who was a friend of Siobhan's oh, yeah. down in Balbriggan and Dave had done Chris Chris De Borg, I think he was so he, he did a nice little studio down there and we I think we only paid a few quid for whatever it was only mm. and uh, just but it was the first time I'd ever heard myself, and I thought it was great, even though it was crap. Like you know, but in, my, in my world, it was great, but I couldn't wait to get it to hear it, to, so I could play it in the car on the way home from the studio. Yeah. Like you know, but uh, I listen back now and I cringe. But it was uh, first; it was only our first time in the well, studio, yeah. and you're, you learn every time you go into the studio. Like you know, you definitely you do, yeah. Um, but like we 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 were very well rehearsed when we went in, and. Um, you know, we are told, make sure you have everything, you know, right and in tune and all that kind of thing. And uh, it, it, it's, you know, when we heard it back, it was, you know, it wasn't bad. We weren't embarrassed about it or anything like that. It's brilliant. I still listen to it to this <laughs> yeah. day. Like, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I love the, the natural sound in it, like, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, um, the next thing we had to go out there and try and get it played. Yeah. And... Uh, we had a guy um, who was the Irish representative, Leslie Mann. He was uh, from Belfast, a great guy, um, and he he was the he was the guy that promoted it over here. And uh, he, you know, we, he told us, you know, go around to the DJs and see can you get them to play it, you know. So we used to go around. It was all sponsored programs back then. It wasn't like. Um, wasn't like mainstream. The only mainstream uh, RT uh, program was hospitals requests, and the rest of them were all um, were all just sponsored programs, and they were made in different studios. So we used to go up to this, the little studios wherever they were. Myself and Tommy would go one way, Noel and Derek would go another way, and we'd go to, we'd have a list of fellas to go up to, and uh, here's my new record, would you give us a little spin? And, uh, you know, that's, we went to see them all, Harry Tullier, you know, uh, Gay Bourne, um, you know, um, they all had uh, shows then, and uh, they gave, normally they give you a spin. It was the first DJ that you remember that gave you a good plug? I, I, I don't know. They, they, they never give you a load of spins. Like, yeah. you, you know, you might get you might get one, um, or you might get two if they liked it a lot. Um, but uh, overall, if if you got enough programs playing, you could have maybe four or five players in a week, yeah. and that'd be really really good and top notch. Do you remember your first time you heard yourselves on radio? Yeah, it was very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> was it on RTE or local radio? Or? It was no, no local radio at the time. Oh, of course not. Yeah, only RTE. Yeah, just the one radio station, and uh, we also got played on Radio Caroline, um, which is like the the, the, the pirate sh- radio. Yeah, the yeah. pirates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah, we got a good lot of play, and, and you know, a lot of people got interested in the band and in the group. It took a while, but uh, you know, when you're out there um, with a record, when very few people had records in Ireland, um, people take notice, and uh, 
we start getting called for gigs here, there, and everywhere, you know, um, because they got to know all the who's these Wolf Tones. Then we got a lot of television because mm. there was very few groups like the Wolf Tones around. Um, so we got a lot of television, and then um, they put on a ballot show then, and um, we were anchor uh, ballot group. They'd have the Dubliners one week and us the next week. Unfortunately, with a lot of them shows, they, they because of the, the, they didn't want to buy tapes for every show. <laughs> they were destroyed. No, they yeah. overrun them with another show. All oh, right. So they were all lost. They were all lost. They lost um, a lot of their stuff and they lost uh, Sean O'Reilly, yeah. a lot of Sean O'Reilly stuff. Um, so... Yeah, it was just a time. It probably try to save at the expense of buying all the tapes. That's a shame. They they uh, over overdub them or overuse them the next time for another show. Yeah, so I remember seeing a video of uh, playing down in I think it was Goffs. Was it Goffs down in Kildare? There. Oh yeah, the horse place. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. horse arena. Yeah, we, we played uh, down there. Yeah, there was a series of shows done there. Yeah. I've seen a yeah. video of that. I think yeah, yeah. it might have been five or six songs. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where it is now, but someone someone put it out there. Yeah, I seen. I don't. I can't remember where it was, but it was it was really good. Like you know, it was great to see the people's reaction. But a great place for a gig as well, because I remember going out to watch the Irish Snooker Masters down there, and it's a great place, obviously, for snooker because it's right around. But I th- thought, it, always thought it was a great place for a gig. Yeah, and uh, it was too, and. Uh, you know, we we did a national stadium there a good lot of times, and the, uh, they used to have the stage at that time in the boxing ring. Yeah, and um, so we played that a lot of times, and uh, I think uh, I think some of that's around. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame that the, that's not there. But the the first album, anyway. Going to London to record that, that must have been a, a good experience for four lads from Ireland. Well, it was in a way and it wasn't in another way. <laughs> we, we, we had little money, let's put it that way. But um, um, And did Fontana not give you like a... No, we uh, didn't get a no, no big handsome sum uh, to sign in. <laughs> not even to feed yourselves, did they not give you... Like no, a, no, nothing like nothing. that. No, 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 nothing. So did we, you stay long in London or are you just there for the no, day, we, did your gig and... Oh, we, we stayed... For, we stayed, we, as I said, we had a gig in the Galtimore or something mm. like that. And uh, that, that gave us a few bob, but I mean, it, w- it wouldn't be enough to... We went over on the boat. Yeah. Um, and uh, boat and train to London. And then I think we stayed with my aunt in London, lived in in East End of London. Yeah. And uh, we stayed in her place for the night to save expense. Then we went to Manchester. We had a gig up there in Manchester with another ballroom and we stayed in Tommy's aunt's. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was cheapo, cheapo all the way. That was good experience though. So for the second album then, which was uh, Up the Rebels, was that recorded live as well or was... No, in actual fact, we call, uh, we... Um, we recorded that in Dublin in oh. in the Eamon Andrews Studios in Henry Street at the time, and uh, that was uh, that was before the invention of stereo. Mm. So what you had to do was um, you'd put down 
the track with um, a singer and guitar and banjo or something like that. And we'd be all singing together, whatever, into the choruses and everything. You put down that and then you play that back and you sang over that track. So they, if you wanted to add like a whistle or something to the track, it was put onto the track while, it's, while they're playing the sack and you're, you're playing the thing. It, if you made a mistake, it could never be taken out. Oh, wow. That's yeah. pressure. <laughs> it could never be taken out because it's, it, it's down as it is. Now, if someone made a mistake, I'd tell you, fuck. Christ's sake, what are you? <laughs> you know, and if you had to go three or four times and someone made the same mistake, it was like, you know, you get the dagger eyes from everybody, you know. But that's, I mean, that adds more to, like, is that having spent time in a recording studio and seeing how easy it is to make a mistake and just now with computers, you can just whip it in, whip it out, like, you know, you yeah, can yeah. change it, you can bend notes, you can do whatever, like, but... That just makes it even more impressive. Some of the sounds that you got from the early albums, like yeah, you know. it was like it was. You had to be really well rehearsed, and then you know you had to have a a pint or two before you went up there. <laughs> a loosener, loosen the nerves <laughs> up or whatever. But it was it was difficult because the first mistake, you know, the whole track was destroyed. It didn't matter, you know, anybody could make it. Yeah, you know, it better be the banjo or the guitar or the bass or whatever, uh, or, you know, and next of all, you know, he's mixing it inside in the thing while you're going along. You're not, you've no flexibility. Yeah. Where did you buy your first banjo? I bought the first banjo in uh, McCullough Pickett's in... I remember McCullough Pickett's. Yeah, yeah. in Dawson Street, I think it was, and... Uh, yeah, well, I think it was... Uh, Dawson Street, and... I remember we played, I was a member of the Young Folk Society at the time, and I remember we we were called on to uh, play with uh, Pete Seeger when he came to Dublin. Wow. And uh, I was, we, we just to sing along with him, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. We wanted people singing along with him. So I was impressed with the banjo and the way he played it and the way he handled it. So I have to get one of these things. So I... Went to McCullough Pickett's and had a look at the banjos. They didn't have a great selection at the time, but they had a Vega. Yeah. And that's what Pete Seeger had. And it was a, a short arm Pika, but he, a Vega, but he had the big long arm one, which I would have loved at the time. But yeah. I couldn't get it. I probably couldn't have afforded it. But I went in anyhow, looked at the banjo, loved it to bits. And uh, I inquired about the price and all that. And then... You know, I didn't have the money for it, so I I got it on the Never Never. Yeah. <laughs> and was it expensive? Uh, it was probably about... Because a huge name, that's now yeah, yeah. Deering, isn't it? Deering? Deering banjos? No, I don't, think, I don't think so. No, I, no, I think f- Deering bought Vega. Did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, Vega was the thing, the banjo, whatever, at the time. And the folk banjo. But... Um, I had to buy it on the Never Never, and I remember um, Tommy Bowen's father went guarantor for me. (laughs) 
He went as guarantor. I needed a guarantor. And he went. He must have had great trust in you. He must, yeah, he must <laughs> make sure you pay this. <laughs> no, and fair play to him, though. Yeah. yeah. And my dad will be down after you. But anyhow, he, he went guarantor. I got the banjo. Um, I was learning how to do it and everything else like that. It was just, I tried the banjo beforehand. I had a, a zither banjo that I had got somewhere or other, but uh, this was the real thing. And funny enough, it was stolen down in Carlow on me. And uh, Was that a Carpenter's Bar? Carpenter's Bar in, 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 in uh, Carlow. It was stolen. And about... Eight years ago, nine years ago, I was over in London and this guy comes up to me. I know who has your banjo. <laughs> I said, what? He says, remember your banjo was robbed in Carlo. He says, I know who has your banjo. I said, I'll buy it back. I'll buy it back off him. So anyhow, I gave him the phone number and everything. And never, he never... Never heard. He probably, never... Yeah, probably him. Probably full of drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, he knew all about the banjo. Yeah, no, but he was probably full of drink and then had a bit of confidence. And then when he sobered up, he was like, fuck that, I'm not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's not going <laughs> to... I'm not phoning him. Yeah. <laughs> Get <yeah>. me arrested. <laughs> I, I, I imagine it could have... Well, he could have been the guy that took it, yeah. you know. It'd be worth a few bob as well, wouldn't it, to Vegas? Yeah, I don't know, but it's, I mean, it was very special to me. Sentimental. Uh, yeah. So that was the end of that banjo. And uh, So I take it you still had to pay it off? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I so, I, I got another one, I got a second-hand one, and uh, I think at, by that stage I could buy it. You were getting enough gigs? Yeah. So your first regular gig was, well, you played up the road here, didn't you? Yeah, well, we used to go out for the weekends. We used to go out to Ballymount, Ballymount there to, uh, with an get Tommy was a, a very, what would you say, he loved the mountains and hiking and all that, and he was a member of Anoga. So we heard there was a good sing song out in the, in the Ballymount every, every. In the week. pub? No, in the, in the. Oh, in the, the, the hostel. In the hostel. And uh, we used to go out there, every, a gang of us go out there every weekend. And uh, we'd have a session, of course. And uh, on the way back then, we'd, uh, the bus, we'd get the bus back. So we used to stop at the bus bar. Now, we were only kids. The bus bar. But uh, uh, we'd set up a session then again there in the bus bar. And, of course... Paddy, what's his name? Paddy, Paddy O'Leary. He, he he was the um, owner of the place at the time. He he loved us coming in. Of course, we get the odd point. We were uh, we only kids, but um, we didn't have enough money to get drunk. But if you got a pint, you were grand. And uh, we'd sing in there, and uh, then when the bus come, we'd off we go on the bus and go home. And that was a great weekend. So bit by bit, people got to know you. We were going to the flowers every weekend and, and uh, collecting songs and getting different songs in different places and um, building up a reputation. Mm. And the first album has quite a lot of uh, what would be termed as more folky songs rather than rebellion songs. Um 
Well, we got a lot of those songs uh, from my grandmother. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, um, I think uh, she, she had a great collection of songs, and uh, we got a whole lot of them from her. Dicey Riley? No, no, no. no. I, I, I don't know where I got that, but I remember putting the claps into it, and then everybody used claps. Um, we were probably the first to do it around the scene. You know, we were, we were, we had a couple of resident resident places where we used to play. One of them was um, we started off in the Montrose Hotel, right, yeah. and uh, then we moved to the South County. Then we moved into the Four Courts in Dublin. Uh, they all became very, very uh, successful. The Four Courts in Dublin, probably we every group that ever came on the scene played there, yeah. and uh, everybody wanted to play there because we we filled it Saturday, Sun, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and uh, we had a various selection of different artists that would come on, including. Um, a Spanish dancer and a and a, a guitarist. Uh, she was Spanish and he was from Dublin. Right. And they called themselves Chinita and Ernesto. <laughs> he was from Dublin. <laughs> he was from the, <laughs> and Ernesto. And they were great. They, yeah. they used to bring the house down. Yeah. Uh, we had Maeve Mulvaney, of course, and she was she was very popular with all the guys at the time. She was good looking girl. She was a great singer. Um, she played the guitar. She had a lovely personality. She eventually married Butch Moore. Right, he was a and, show band, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He represented Ireland in the. Pardon. Ireland in the Eurovision, was he? He was in the Eurovision. Yeah, yeah. she married. She married him. He was already married with kids, and uh, they they went to America. They opened a bar over there. We we went up to their bar, and I often sang a song up there. You know, they'd be up on stage, and yeah. I got up on stage with them and sing a song or that. And uh, that was they they had a, a successful life over there in America. And uh, unfortunately, Butch Moore died young enough, yeah. and she died not long after him. Had she slipped on the ice and on steps oh. and died. Genie. And where was that that they were in? They America? were in uh, Massachusetts. They were, I think, it was um, up near. It was past Worcester. Uh, what the? Uh, can't remember the the name of the place they had. Um, but uh, yeah, they they played all around that area. Mm. They had a pub in that area somewhere. I was just driven there. So <laughs> <laughs> after the concert one night, you know. So, Zoological Gardens, where did that come from? The, the Zoological Gardens was a well-known song um, around, and I had, it in, I had it in several books. Mm. At the time, like, I used to research, I used to go to the National Library and research uh, songs. I also, um, I got, I bought books and bits and pieces and bits of things and uh, even back at that young age yeah, you yeah. had an interest in that yeah I used to go into the National Library in Dublin um, and the, this is a, uh, I'd go in there and I used to ask the guy is there any books on Irish song and ballads mm. and they give them to me and you could go through them and if I saw something I wanted I'd copy it right 
So a lot of the times um, I'd spend in there. So you obviously had a love for music from an early age. I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, you, I think I, you were supposed to go to piano lessons. I, I made you sign it. No, well, there was accordion lessons first. Oh, with, was it? With Mick Crofton then and Sigurd. Was it Mick Crofton? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it was piano lessons with Cora, but I just, yeah, I just rebelled against it because... You didn't like it. <laughs> it's not that, well, it, yeah, I just had no interest in playing the piano. I wish I had learned the piano now, and I know yeah. you did get me to sign it, but... At the time, I just... You signed the document, I care no more. I remember, I remember, blah, blah, blah. I remember, I remember. Against my father's wishes. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I do regret it, and you did say I would regret it. I would have loved to be able to play the piano. But, yeah. um, and it's a, great, it's, it's a great instrument for, you know, I think if you know the piano, you can turn your hand to any instrument. Yeah. You know? But I think the guitar is similar to that. Like, if you can play the guitar... Does give you a good basis for oh, banjo and, and, and mandolin yeah. and yeah. other things like after that. Like I suppose the mandolin is very similar to the, the tenor banjo, and the tenor banjo is strung the same as a violin or a fiddle, but you know it's <laughs> a little bit different. But but it does uh, give you that background. But I do regret it. So your interest for music came from well, you know, the, I think family entertainment was. Um, the only entertainment you had back then because, you know, television didn't come along for a long time in our house. Anyhow, I was probably 16 before we got television. And um, radio had a lot of music. We listened to radio and we listened uh, to the records that we had, the few that we might have had. Uh, So that was all music. And then apart from that, there was the sing-songs Every week down in my grandmother's house, every Friday night, when they all got paid, they went down to the pub. They come back from the pub, bring fish and chips home or whatever, and uh, the sing song would start. They'd have bottles of stout back and everything, and the smoke and beer going around the place, and everybody sang a song. So you learned a lot of songs in that way. I mean, I still see. Uh, I hear great songs that the you know that they they had. Yeah, like my grandfather was a great singer. He 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 was wanted all over the place because he, he was a great entertainer and singer. You know, yeah. he had great stories. He used to do the monologues like uh, you know like uh, the cremation of Sam McGee and you know all those great uh, monologues. So. He was a very entertaining guy, and I think he um, he instilled the fact that I could entertain when I thought of the way he could do it. Yeah. Um, and did you always believe from early that you would do music as a, a living, or did it just no, happen no. by the by? No, no, no. I never thought at any stage that I'd be um, making a living out of this. I was enjoying what I was doing. But I never thought that there's a living in this. And I don't think we ever did at any stage, even when, you know, when we got more popular, you know, it's just like, how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> but were you afraid, like, did you work so hard back then because you were afraid that this could stop at any time and I need to make as much money out of it as possible? Or just that the gigs just kept coming and you were it rolling just, with um, it? Yeah, it was, 
it evolved rather than it was constructed. We never, we never ever thought like, um, oh, we're going to do this and then we're going to do that and blah, 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 blah. So the whole thing just kept rolling down the hill or up the hill, whatever way you'd like to put it. And one thing happened after another, after another, after another. And, um, you know, and we got more popular than ever, you know, as time went on. And, you know, I don't think it was just because a lot of people say because the troubles happened. Mm. You know, we were gone for years before the troubles came in. Yeah. So, um, and we were very popular before the troubles came in. So uh, the troubles came on top of us, you might say. Yeah. And from the, but I mean, there was still a lot of Irish rebel songs around before the troubles, but after the troubles then... Well, it became a lot more things to write about in terms of... Yeah, well, I as a writer, um, certainly, I made a decision some years when the trouble started, the civil rights movement started, um, that to do as much as I can to assist uh, the people of the six counties in their struggle. And the only means at my disposal was uh, song and the ability to write it. Mm. Um, so that 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 was my way of giving support. And um, when something came up that was I, you know, that was a horrific occasion or anything like that, uh, I wrote a song about it. Like uh, children of fear. Like it's it's about uh, well, the Price Sisters were originally um, involved in that civil rights march. Mm. And I think after that, they they were kind of, um, they took up arms and they they, they were radicalised by the hateful mob that attacked them on that day. Mm. And um, originally the words were children of price. Mm. And I changed that uh, because I wanted to, I didn't want it just about them. It was about yeah. something bigger. About all children. And yeah, yeah. And that so, was, so that was Children of Fear, and that came about. And then other songs came about because of the awful events that came upon us. Yeah. And can you remember what was the first song you wrote about? Six Counties. Well, I think the first song was... Um, the, um, what's it called? Um, there's worlds of troubles and sorrows, where there's worlds and fire from lands. Must Ireland divide the bay? Must Ireland divide the bay. Right. Ireland has made its contribution to peace and forgot its own troubles at hand. Wow. So I think that, I think that was the first one, and that was probably, uh, probably about 16 or 17 when I put that together. Wow. So, um, yeah, I was, Doing bits and pieces all along, but I mean, even when we were in the Scouts, we used to write songs about other fellas. <laughs> Did you? So you were writing songs from an early age, right? Yeah, they were kind of ditties, bits yeah. and pieces. They weren't. Uh, but you were always writing. Always trying to make up things. Yeah, yeah. Was Derek like that when he was? No, Derek. Yeah. Derek had no, no, no. 
at that stage he wasn't writing or never thought of writing. I I think I encouraged him in some way as to do yeah. it. Um, but he, he hadn't written anything for years and years and years, yeah. probably about the 90s, 80s. Yeah. You know, but um, yeah, I'd be doing it all along because I, I loved creating a song or making it, making it happen and you know, then when I record it, um, and you hear your own music, then I, yeah, I think it's great. I love yeah, it. Like yeah, I love doing yeah. it, and I, I would love to write a full album. But the problem with writing a full album of your own songs is no one recognizes them, and we learned that from the first album that we did, which was, yeah, yeah. was a rise, and uh, it was mostly all our own songs. Yeah, um, apart from the the bit of fun we had with the the Wild West Rover, as we called it, mm. but. Uh, Still, I'm very proud of listening back to that. Now, we recorded with someone who wasn't really well-versed in the Irish ballads, mm. Republican music, so he was sort of more from a jazz background. So so I don't think he had a great interest in the in the, in, in the actual recording yeah. of it. But he's a fierce nice guy and done a great job for, for what we were spending on it. But mm. um, but working with Keeve brought it to a different level. Yeah, Keeve uh, has a studio up in... Um, the hour there, and uh, I've been using them for years and years and years. So, um, and he's very good at recording and putting it together. So, he's very, guy. he's very thorough, you know. And it, I think even if you sit down and you spoke to Phelan about it, uh, you'd say, like, we became better musicians from working with Keeve <laughs> because you know, but he was very good, you know, he'd, he'd yeah. get the best out of you, yeah. but he had a great ear for when you were doing something wrong, like, you'd think. I've done that great, and Keith would go, no. <laughs> and, and then you'd be stuck on it, and he'd say, right, let's go get a cup of tea, you know, take your mind off, and then he'd bring you back in and do it again. Like, yeah, you know, but yeah. it, it definitely, like, you improved, improved our sound anyway. Yeah. Not not just in an album, but in the live shows, we became better, better you yeah, know. Yeah. It made us think about things differently as well. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, that's great. Mm. And that's the way, uh, you know, you evolve in music is, you know, more experience you get, the more things that happen. The you're, always, you're always learning. You yeah. never, you never, never stop. Yeah. You're never the perfect article. Yeah. And uh, like even writing songs now, I guess you're probably one in six or seven are decent songs, and the rest are just you end up in a in a in a pile in the corner. You know, I, I still keep them. Like I have a record of I've got a book of songs that I've done. Like yeah. Some of them. We'll never see I don't that. know how you do it. You do, you do so much stuff. Like I, I, I'm probably a very slow writer, um, and uh, because I, I do a lot of like historic uh, songs, so it has to be really, really well re- um, researched. Yeah. So you you can't put something into a song that's not right, especially when you're writing about history or or, or someone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can't get the facts wrong on that yeah, because once can't. it's down there, it's no, it has yeah, to be right. Yeah. So, for say for the likes of Joe McDonald, like how did you get that information about Joe? Well, funny enough, uh, Gretty said that to me. She said, "How did you know Joe so well?" I said, "I didn't." And um, you know, I heard on the radio that morning that Joe McDonald had died, and uh, I was. I remember I was very angry. I re- I actually remember. Uh, yeah, I was, you being angry, and I remember yeah. you going in to write it. 
Yeah, I do. I, no, it's not. A, it's not a very clear memory, but it's it's yeah. there. I um, I was in bed. I had a radio beside the bed. The news came on. I got up um, and I pulled out a guitar, which is a guitar in the bedroom at the time, and uh, I wrote the song. Um, by twelve o'clock that day, I think the song was written, and. Um, I met uh, Gretty. We had a song for years um, before we got to record it. I remember presenting it to the to the group at the time. They said, "No, we don't want to do it." So anyhow, years later, um, about two years later, um, I brought it up again, and uh, we recorded it, and. Uh, we we're going to bring it out there on the album, and uh, uh, we said we better find out how you know the family think about it. So I met Gretty in uh, the Gresham Hotel in Dublin. She came down to Dublin. I had a copy of the song for on tape, on a cassette tape at the time, and I said uh, I want you to have a listen to this and uh, play it for your children, and if you like it, we'll we'll bring it out if you don't like it it'll never see the light of day yeah I said it's up to you I don't want you to go into hardship again listening to this story over and over again so about a week or two later she comes back down to Dublin um, I meet her again in the Gresham Hotel and uh, I said how did the kids feel about it she said they loved it and she said she, everyone she played it to loved it loved the song mm. I said is it okay to bring it out then Said if you don't fucking bring it out, I'm gonna kill you. I shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, funny enough, I met her up in uh, the failure there about oh, about three years ago, and uh, I said to Granny, I said, "Did you mean that?" <laughs> 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 she said every word of it. <laughs> of course she didn't, but I mean that's like the. I think the kids were very proud of the song, the way it was put. And she just said to me, she said, how did you know Joe so well? Mm. And I said, I didn't. I said, he, he was right there with me writing it. Wow. That's what I felt because I just wrote it. I, mm. I, was, I, was the, I was the pen pusher, you know, just flowed into my mind the whole thing, you know, and uh, you dare to call me a terrorist mm. while you look down your gun. Great lines. Yeah, you know. and uh, I think that creates a very powerful image straight away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, they were so liberal in calling everybody a terrorist. Yeah. You know, all, any, any Irish person who ever, you know, fought for Ireland's freedom as a terrorist, that's mm. the way it was put. And those that supported terrorism, mm. as they call it, um, you know, got run down for that so it was a very contentious word mm. and they were getting away with it yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the, to turn the table on them was and you dare to call me a terrorist while you look down your gun mm. you know great words yeah how yeah. how could they do that I remember I remember singing it for <laughs> Mick McCarthy from the embankment and Mick wouldn't have been the greatest rebel ever <laughs> he, yeah. he was in the RAF but uh, he, uh, I sang the song. We were in the dressing room and uh, we hadn't brought it out at this stage. And he just said, I sang it. And he just said, uh, 
My God, he said, that's a powerful song. He says, you know what's powerful about that song? While you call me a terrorist while you're looking down the barrel of your gun. Yeah. He said, that's it. Yeah. He said, amazing song. And now he wouldn't have been a rebel. No, not if he was a TRF. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, the, the, them words are just like unbelievable. Like, And I love singing that song, but I'm always terrified singing it because... I'm always afraid I make a mistake on it, and yeah, it's just yes. such it's such an emotional, powerful song. Yeah. Especially when I do it in front of the the lads up from West Belfast when I'm doing it in the Ireland gigs. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but I do love singing it. I do absolutely love singing it. My two favorite songs to sing are Joe MacDonald and Ireland on Free. I think Ireland on Free. Ireland is a great on song. Free. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he was a guy we used to drink with um, uh, down in. Uh, well, it was Vaughn's and then Maloney's and Inchy Core. And it, it was a kind of our, our office for a while because we know phones in the houses. Yeah. And we used to use the phone down the pub to call people. Oh, yeah, we can do it on Thursday. Yeah. That was it. And someone would ring, yeah, looking for the Bulldogs. <laughs> that was our... That was your communication with the world. Yeah, that was our office. And uh, anyhow, Mr. Mac down there, a good old character he was, but uh, I guess he was was well retired. He was probably in his seventies, and uh, used to leave him back down to his house. You know, he lived down there in Torvey Avenue. It's all gone now, all them little houses. But uh, we used to leave him down there, and the picture on the wall, which everybody had, you know, it was a well known picture yeah. of Patrick Pierce. Yeah. And Ireland of free shall never be at peace underneath it. And uh, um, he was he was in the nineteen sixteen, but I don't know how involved he was or whatever. But we never really discussed it that much for him. But the whole picture saw this old guy that I knew very well, his little smoky cottage or whatever, and. Uh, the picture of Padraig Pierce, Ireland of Free Shall Never Be a Keys. And that's the song. I just wrote it about him. Mm. And my experience of leaving him home. Mm. That's a great song. Yeah, yeah. And it creates powerful images as well. Yeah. You know, uh, that, I think that's, that's what makes... The unknown soldier. Like, it's like... No one will ever know his name or what he did. Yeah. Um, and so there's lots and lots of people. That, Tommy's... Tommy's grandfather, you know, um, he he never spoke about it to his grandkids. Mm. You know, it was only when he, after he died they found all this stuff up in the attic. That he'd fought in the GPO. Yeah. yeah. And that, uh, I mean, one of the iconic photographs from the GPO, he's in that photograph. Wow. You know? And uh, so people didn't really boast or speak about it. Mm. You know, um, I don't know why, but I guess, you know, they're silent about their bravery or yeah. about their fight or whatever. Yeah. But it's it, it, like, that's what the unknown soldier is. Yeah. You know. And it's a great song. It's, I really love singing it. I do. Yeah. Like, if anyone asks me what my favorite song is, yeah, I'd say yeah. that. Yeah. I know Cahill, or my nephew, your cousin there, loves it too. Yeah. And Phelan, Phelan loves playing mm. it as well, one of the, the favourites. Um, so, 
I guess we call that a wrap for episode two. Another day. Another day, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we'll play out with uh, the usual song, which is what the episode is named after, and that is Down in the Mines. Some great harmonies in this one. The tough, sturdy miner works hard for his pay. He works through the night and most of the day. But there's no one who works harder way down in the ground than Billy the pit horse and slave to the mine. It's dark as a dungeon, it's damp as a dew, where the dangers are double and the pleasures are few, where the rain never falls and the sun never shines. It's dark as a dungeon way down in the mines. There's many a pretty girl I've known in my life who lived just to be a coal miner's wife. A coal miner's wife must be hardy and strong and should never worry if things should go wrong. It's dark as a dungeon, it's damp as a dew, where the dangers are double and the pleasures are few. everyone for listening and and don't forget to give us a like or give us a share and tell your friends about it and get other people involved because the more people listening the more we'll keep this going all right thanks very much take care stay safe we'll meet again next week and we'll have another yap bye bye